maybe one of the more famous movies in the last couple decades that had quite a twist at the end was The Sixth Sense. Did y'all watch The Sixth Sense? Anybody see The Sixth Sense? I'm not going to give it away, but you know where the twist was. Did any of you see it coming? Did you see it coming? No, okay, good. I thought some of you were like, like amazingly brilliant or something. Not that you aren't, I just, if you would have seen that coming, that would have been something. Uh, if you have not seen The Sixth Sense, you have no idea what I'm talking about and nothing that I'm saying you can relate to. But just think of a movie that has a twist or a story. That's where I want to take you. I want you to think about those moments in a story where a twist pulls you deeper inside the story. That's what's going to happen today. There will be a twist. Now, not a twist out of left field, but a twist that is close enough to a theme in the Gospel of Mark that will help us have a ha-ha moment to understand Jesus and the kingdom of God a little more. We're going to pick up Luke, uh, Luke, Mark, Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we'll pick up with verse 35. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. We're coming to the end of this chapter, which is going to be an important end to a section in this gospel. We pick up verse 35, chapter 12. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the one, is the, I'm sorry, that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. And as he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. Now, that ends an important section in the Gospel of Mark. This is the last scene Jesus teaching in the temple courts. This is the last scene. It's an important one. It really brings to a climax the events that have happened over the last several days as Jesus has walked into Jerusalem as he is moving to the cross. Very few understand that this is the trajectory of his path. Now, here, Mark is going to highlight a theme he's been weaving throughout the gospel. This is that theme that relates to the Messiahship. That is, this Messiah figure that was promised from long ago. And Mark's going to develop that along the way. He's going to talk about who the Messiah is and who understands and who doesn't understand, who has faith and who doesn't have faith. And all along the way, this theme gets weaved into the chapters of, of Mark's gospel. It's so important to the Gospel of Mark, it's so important as he, the author, was putting it together that he makes sure that we understand its elevation, that is, its importance. Look how he opens his record of the life of Jesus. He writes this, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. 
No birth narrative. We jump right in to the life of Jesus. And in the next 13 verses, at the front of Mark's gospel, we're going to learn a lot about where this gospel's going. Now, when we did this, when we started this series and we did this first sermon on the gospel of Mark and looked at those first 13 verses, we noted that Mark was going to pay attention to at least three things, not only in these 13 verses, but themes that would be weaved throughout our time in the gospel of Mark. These three things, we put up this slide months and months ago. Three things in the Gospel of Mark, Messiah, wilderness, and stoop. Three words that describe three themes that we're going to see running through that whole Gospel. And we have. We have seen the Messiah as a big part of what Mark is trying to tell us and how Jesus is that Messiah. We also know that if the Messiah is going to be anything, it's going to have something to do with what happens when Jesus is baptized, this moment where he stoops to go underwater, and when he goes into the wilderness and has victory over Satan. Whatever else the Messiah is going to do, we can from the beginning know that something about humility and something about victory, victory over evil, are going to mark his path. Now the people had no problem understanding that the Messiah would be victorious over evil. This was not off the radar here. This, is not, this wasn't out of the blue. The people of that day were hoping for someone Someone that God would, would choose to be a representative for the people to lead the victory over Israel's enemies. And that figure would be the anointed one. He would be king of Israel. And then once the enemies are vanquished, he would turn over the kingdom of God to God, king of the world. And so this victory was going to come in a pretty clear path. At least they understood it. You know, they had, they had a particular understanding of how this would all look. They had read the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, and they had seen these promises, and they knew the trajectory of the path of this human agent chose by God to his throne where he vanquishes God's enemies. Take a look. Remember, back in January, we looked at this path. It would be the human agent walking a straight path of power and strength all the way to his throne. It would, be, it would be marked by these words, royal, deliverer, judge, powerful, exalted. He would be king. This is who the Messiah would be, powerful. He would bring violence in order to vanquish God's enemies. This is how any human ruler gains their strength. And it would be no different for God's Messiah. So the idea that the Messiah would be victorious, a theme that is pregnant in those first 13 verses of the gospel, is not, out of the or- is not, uh, is not something that should surprise us. This Messiah would be victorious. He was walking to his throne, and he would beat God's enemies. But all along the way, you have this theme of humility that no one really knows what to do with, Right? So in the wilderness, remember, Jesus beats Satan, at least in the temptation. Yes, victorious. But he also was the Messiah who stooped down and went underwater in humility. So where do you fit humility in the story? No one really knew what to do with all of that. As Mark puts the gospel together to teach us who this Messiah is and how he is Jesus, he makes sure to weave into that account this theme of humility all along the way. And Jesus over and over again tries to tell them, my path is not in military power. It will be a path of humility. 
If you remember, he says it several times. I'm only picking one. We don't have time to go through all the places in Mark's gospel where he tries to tell this to his disciples. But one big one was this. Mark 9, 37. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Mark weaves into his gospel the theme of Messiah from the beginning. And there we see that the Messiah not only would be victorious, he would be humble. And no one knew how to put them all together. But Jesus did. And all along the way, Mark is trying to communicate to the reader exactly how those things are going to come together. And so those two things, his victory and his humility, are going to come together in this final teaching at the end of Mark chapter 12, where Jesus is going to reveal one last layer in a teaching about who the Messiah is, about who he is. And he does that with this twist. He does this with this really interesting twist. He asks them about who the Messiah would be. And most people think it will be a son of David. That is, it would be a king, a human agent, descended from the line of King David from a thousand years before. So no one had a problem with that. Human agent, king, on his trajectory to the throne, beat God's enemies. What they didn't expect is that the path would go a different direction. Can we put that up? It would go this way. It would be a path where he walks through humility, a path despised, then on to his enthronement. You don't get the exaltation unless you go through the valley of death. That will be the path of the Messiah. So when he comes to the end of chapter 12 asking them who the Messiah is, everyone comes thinking, well, then this will be the son of David. But then he takes Psalm 110. And he twists in, a, in, a, in an accurate way. This isn't a, a twisting uh, in some negative way. He throws an interpretation onto Psalm 110 that no one had seen. No one expected that Psalm 110 was a psalm about the Messiah. And so Jesus asks, who? Who is the Messiah? Ah, son of David. They want to know, well, then how in the world Jesus asks them, how in the world can he be both Lord and Son? They don't understand this. Because in that psalm, remember, David David calls the Messiah his Lord, not his Son. No one has seen this at this point. This, doesn't, this, this, this is not, uh, this is not uh, something that they are expecting. And no one finds a full answer. But it tells us something about the Messiah. And we'll put up a summary to make sure we get it here concisely. So in Psalm 110, David doesn't talk about the Messiah as his son, but as his Lord. The Messiah would not only be a descendant of David, but God himself. He would embody Israel's God. That means that not only would the Messiah, the human agent, be human, he would be God in flesh. No one expected a human agent, the Messiah, to be God himself. But here Jesus gives that interpretation when he asks that question on Psalm 110. Which means that everything we've seen up to this point just doesn't reveal something about a human agent. It doesn't just reveal something about Jesus, human king, to reign over Israel. 
Everything we've seen to this point, every teaching Jesus has given about himself, that whole thing about victory and humility, it says something about God. And in our day, there's a lot of talk about God, like generic, like God, like we all worship the same God. Like if you're a Muslim, if you still are a Jew, or if you're a Christian, or pick anything else, as long as you use the word God, we must all believe the same thing. Not the case. Not at least as we understand it in the New Testament. You, you don't get a generic God. You get Jesus. So if you want to see God, you have to look at Jesus. You don't look at Allah, you look at Jesus. You don't look at Muhammad, you look at Jesus. You don't look at some Hindu teacher, you look at Jesus. You don't look at a Buddha, you look at Jesus. You don't look at a generic God, you look at Jesus. And so if you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus, God in flesh. And when Jesus then pulls Psalm 110 into the present, he's saying that the Messiah would embody the God of Israel. God in flesh. Now, the Christians will eventually pick up that idea and they'll say it a lot clearer. At that point, Jesus can't say it much clearer. They won't understand. They don't even understand what he's doing now. But the Christians, after the resurrection, after the good news has gone into the world, those Christians are going to write this. They're going to pen this truth pretty clearly. Take a look at the way John does it in his gospel. John starts his gospel by saying, John 1.18, he says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. If you want to see God the Father, you look at Jesus. That's very clear. Paul says it another way. In his letter to the Colossians, he says this, chapter 2, verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So what happens at the end of uh, Mark chapter 12 is that this Messiah is finally revealed to be the God of Israel in flesh. We have not seen that up until this point. Now, that has a significant impact for us. Because the question then has to be raised, when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Well, you're going to see victory, but you're also going to see humility and you're going to see them come together. I just want to take the first part of one of the most famous statements on Jesus' identity that's written in the New Testament. It comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul. He writes this, Philippians 2, 6-8. He writes this, Who, this who is Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, verses 9 through 11 say he was exalted. There's the victory. Here we see the stooping. We see the humility. The Messiah held both victory and humility inside himself, not just as a human agent, but God. That is who God is. God walks the path of humility. That's what love looks like. That's when love wins. Now, you take all of that. So you need to take that, all of this, all of this, these themes, this theme of the Messiah with these sub-themes of both victory and humility all being inside of this human, God in flesh, all of that is embedded in Jesus' teaching about Psalm 110. When he asks this question about who the Messiah is and then declares it is also David's Lord 
All of this is sitting in the background, pregnant in the interpretation of the passage. So what that will mean then is that everything that comes forward in the next two, sec- two parts of this passage are going to say something then about how Jesus is teaching about the Messiah. So if the Messiah is the humble one, if that is God himself, the one who comes to serve rather than be served, then do you know who stands in stark contrast to the humility of the God of Israel now embodied in the Messiah? You know who stands in contrast to that one? The religious leaders. Because what did the religious leaders try to do? Be number one. They wanted the seats of honor. They wanted to make sure everyone knew who they were. They wanted to be served. And so these two stand in contrast, and there's no doubt that Mark makes sure to record this last twist, this last revelation of who the Messiah is and all of his humility, and puts up against it the foil of the Pharisees and the religious leaders in all of their pride. That, will not, that is not the way of life. And to close off this section, before we go into a very long teaching next week, to close the section, he puts in a last teaching of Jesus as an illustration. I'm sure Jesus taught a lot of other things before he walked out of the city that day. But Mark chose this story to close it off. He tells the story of a widow. And the point of that story is what she gave. What did she give? Now you would, might say two coins. But Jesus doesn't just say two coins. He says in the end, she gave everything. Everything she had to live on. She gave her life back. Now, it's interesting that that same language of the widow giving everything, giving her her life, is the same language that Jesus uses about himself when he talks about what he came to do. And so that same thread is weaved into the background of something Jesus said which was recorded in Mark chapter 10. Take a look. This is Jesus' last statement in this chapter about what he came to do. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Interesting. These things aren't coincidences. Mark has put this together so that we can see it all playing out, so that we get to the end of chapter 12 and we say, is it just a human agent that gave his life? It is God himself. That is who is the God of the universe, working through his son, the Messiah, Jesus. And so there's application. There's got to be application. You take all of that, you take all of that, this key teaching about victory through humility through the Messiah who gives life, there's got to be some application for us. Okay, I'm going to start easy. We're going to just start easy. I feel like this is the softball. Here it is. We are called, this is we, as Christians, we are called to give everything we have like the widow, like Jesus. The point, the point of application is that we are to be the widow. We are to give everything like she gave. And you know, Jesus has already been hinting at this. Mark has already been giving us clues along the way. Remember what we're supposed to give back to God? Now, you give Caesar what Caesar's. Anything with Caesar's image, give back to him. Then you give to God what is God's. What has God's image? Your life. 
Your life has God's image. So you give your life back to him. Then just after that, how much are you supposed to love God? You love God with all your what? Your strength, mind, soul, spirit. You, li- you love God with your whole life. And then we come at the conclusion of this section where a widow gives everything, which just happens to be exactly what God is doing through the Messiah. So we are called to the same path. You can't get life on another path. Now let me bring back an oldie but a goodie. Mark chapter 8. We saw it coming. We should have seen this coming. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 35. Jesus says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. If you want life, you have to walk the path of humility. You can't get it by being, trying to be number one. That's just the way the kingdom of God works. This was all embedded in Mark's gospel from the start. And it will continue to develop as we go forward. But right here, we're at the end of an important section where we see this isn't just Jesus. This is God, the God of Israel embodied in the Messiah. There's no other God but the God of humility and love. Which means that's our path. Which is why Jesus says you have to take up your cross too. Now that's really big language. Like what in the world? Take up, pick up your cross? Like I don't have a cross. I mean I might have one that hangs on my, around my neck. But I'm telling you just so you're, we're clear. Jesus was not talking about putting on a necklace when he said carry your cross. Just so we're clear. I got no problem with crosses. I'm just saying that's not what he's talking about. So what would he mean? I'm going to give it a shot. I'm just going to throw some things out. This is not an exhaustive list. Although if you're convicted by any of it, then the Holy Spirit might be trying to do something in you at that point. But here's some things that I think we might be able to move towards as some application. So I think that the following the way of the cross involves an intentional strategic plan to stop some things. A lot of these come from my own life, except this first one. I have never yelled when I am mad. Come on. Let's let's go forward. (laughs) So we stop this. This is a one way to carry your cross, yelling at home when mad looking at inappropriate images, holding on to bitterness, gossiping about people you don't like, buying things you can't afford to impress others, overworking to avoid time with family, making sure you have the last word in every argument, or beating yourself up. A word about beating yourself up real quick. If you are always beating yourself up, who are you always looking at? Yourself. Now, there is something called depression, and it's real. This is not a slight against depression. What it is is a realization that one way to come out of places of darkness is to get the focus off ourselves. It is hard to see beyond the horizon when you only can see in front of your two feet. And so we get a vision beyond. This is just a reminder, just a reminder. This is not a slight to mental illness. But we must be careful how often we beat ourselves up. We don't ever want to be harder on ourselves than God is. So let's go with some other, let's go with another list. So yeah, carrying your cross can be stopping some things, also can be starting some things. Here are some options. Helping those in need without strings attached. Forgiving someone who's hurt you, which by the way is a process. That's not just like, you just don't push a button and that happens. Being patient with people who annoy you. Becoming friends with someone who isn't like you. Praying for your enemies. Spending time with family even when it's not efficient. Letting go of having the last word in an argument. 
and being patient with yourself. Be patient with yourself. You know, you're going to mess up today, and that's okay. You're human. Being trained in the kingdom of God. Mess-ups happen. Be patient. It's okay. You don't have to be perfect today. Jesus will cover you on that. So these are just some things we can do to pick up our cross. So let's pull it to a next step. Just something that we can do this week. Some uh, concrete step. Pick up your cross and serve someone like Jesus. Serve someone like Jesus. Be inconvenienced. Help someone. Don't think you have to be super uh, Wonder Woman or Superman on this. Just calling someone and asking how they're doing. That can be a way of serving someone. The goal here is that you and I want to move in the way of Jesus to serve rather than always seeking to be served. That's the goal here. That's the goal here. That's how we take this passage in this last section of Mark chapter 12 and we get it into real life. This is how you and I act like the widow. This is how we live like the God of Israel through Jesus who now has called the world to that kind of life. Serve someone this week. In a practical way, serve someone. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the way Mark has put this gospel together. Walk with us into our week and help us. Help us to serve others. Help us to give up our life so that we may gain it. Help us to be patient with ourselves. Help us in our anxiety. Help us in our fear. And help us walk with joy. And may we do it as we love you with all our life and as we love our neighbor as ourselves. So you'll help us, and we know you will. We do that together as a church family and even as individuals. And under the name of Jesus and his authority, the Messiah, God in flesh, we pray. And together we say,